Welcome to the Cars Deep and Wide podcast. This is episode 12 with Tom Schreiner. This past November, we had the great privilege in Karis Church to welcome into our midst for our annual theology conference, Dr. Tom Schreiner, along with his wife, Diane. Tom is a professor of New Testament and biblical theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He is truly one of the eminent Pauline scholars in the world, and he's done extensive research and writing on gender. And for this year's conference, we entitled it Different by Design, and we looked at how God has made men and women equal in dignity and worth, but different in role and function. I hope you'll enjoy this first session with Tom as he talks about modern challenges to the Bible's teaching on gender. Well, it's great. It's great to be here tonight. And uh, I, I probably haven't been here. Diane and I haven't been here for four, four or five years. It's always great to see Kevin and Amy again. And uh, I just love that worship time at the beginning. You know, that song, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus, that was uh, a song in our wedding. And, and uh, at least in my experience, you know, we, I haven't, we, we don't sing that very much, so it was great to sing it again and just to be reminded of the, the great truths of that, of that song. So it's just a delight to be here. Thanks for coming out on a Friday night, of all things. And um, you get an extra hour of sleep tomorrow night, though. Right? Remember that. So that's, that's good. You'll probably need it before I preach Sunday morning. Anyway, um, tonight, tonight I'm giving more of a lecture on uh, theological foundations on gender. A lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is going to enter the issue by talking about gender dysphoria, which I'll talk about as we go. So um, clearly, I mean, I'm older maybe than everybody in this room, I don't know. But um, uh, I don't know. We could talk about it later. <laughs> so, but there have been massive changes in our society, haven't there? there? Things have changed. I mean, you think of uh, Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner. Just, that's, that's a remarkable change in terms of the transgender issue. Uh, questions of what do we do you know, with bathrooms, right? What do we do in prisons? These are questions that are... are arising in our society today. Here's the words of uh, Judith Lorber. She's, she's a radical feminist. This is what she says. When we no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant, when the information is as relevant as the color of a child's eyes, only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. Quite remarkable. And when that happens, there will no longer be any need for gender at all. So many see gender today, right, as a, as a social construct. Uh, sexual differentiation need not be fixed, is what we're being told more and more. And more. Sexual orientation is, is fluid. We're free to choose. We're free to choose our sexual orientation. We're free to choose our sexual identity. That's what our society is telling us more and more. Let me, let me just say, say a word here about definitions. I'm getting this from Joe Carter, who blogs quite a bit. Maybe some of you read him. He says, transgenders can thus be bigender, moving between feminine and masculine gender type behavior. Trigender shifting between male, female, and a third gender, pan-gender, all genders at once, gender-queer, a catch-all for people who consider themselves any of the subsets of transgender, such as genderless, pan-gender, etc. I mean, it gets incredibly complicated, doesn't it? What's going on in our society today? Some think heterosexuals are repressing and suppressing those who differ from them. Clearly, if you're following things at all, the media, 
the entertainment industry, the academy, they're, they're, they're behind, aren't they? They're behind the transgender movement, at least mainly, and significantly. I, I haven't seen this program. Maybe some of you have. I didn't, I didn't even know it existed, but I started reading about these things. There's apparently a TV reality show featuring jazz. I don't know if you've heard of this. A 15-year-old American boy who's becoming a girl. And in this show, Jazz's parents are presented as role models of loving support of their child shifting the gender. Even, even in evangelicalism, I'm, I'm going to keep this vague because I don't want to beat up on anybody, but there's an evangelical publishing house who published a book by an author. So this is an evangelical publishing house. This is you and me. And, and this author says, heterosexuality is an abomination. That's in an evangelical publishing house. Later she qualifies her statement in the book, but she goes on to say this, we need to be calm about sexuality and to be mature so that we stop rooting after moral law and clinging to moral judgments. We should reject sexual dimorphism or binary sex categories like male and female. So we should reject categories like male and female. For though they seem to simply reflect the binary pattern of creation, they are cultural creations. The author desires a non-judgmental approach where there are no sexual labels, where we no longer judge people on the basis of their sexuality. For we will never agree on sexual ethics and what are divergent sexual practices. So that's from a book published by an evangelical publisher recently. Last week I was speaking in um, Mississippi, but we were driving home through Alabama, and I saw a big billboard about a church, and the, and the billboard adver- advertised the church this way. Come to our church, a church where you're loved and not judged. Come to our church, a church where you're loved and not judged. Well, yes, 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 but, right? What do we say to a statement like that? Yes, yes, but. I would argue that we love people the most, Kevin's really already said this tonight, by telling them what God says, which is what the Bible says about this matter. Uh, Kevin also mentioned Jen Hatmaker. Maybe some of you read this week uh, the response of Rosaria Butterfield. And uh, I want to read you some of what she said because I thought it was so helpful when we think of this matter. Of course, Jen Hatmaker claimed that same-sex relationships can actually be holy and right and good. And Rosaria Butterfield, you know her story, she, she herself uh, was a practicing lesbian, and, uh, but she's become a believer and turned away from that. And here's what she says. If this were 1999, this is Rosaria Butterfield speaking, the year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I love, instead of 2016, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like the bomb of Gilead. How amazing it would have been to have someone as radiant, knowledgeable, humble, kind, and funny as Jen saying out loud what my heart was shouting. Yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline, which was queer theory and English literature and culture, and in my church. My emotional vertigo would find normal again. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of my sin and I suffered the consequences. Maybe it would go differently for me than it did for Paul, Daniel, David, and Jeremiah. Maybe Jesus could save me without afflicting me. Maybe the Lord would give me respectable crosses manageable thorns. 
Today I hear Jen's words, words meant to encourage, not discourage, to build up, not tear down, to defend the marginalized, not broker unearned power, and a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. If I were still in the thick of the battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, Jen's words would have put a millstone around my neck. I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against God's word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. I think that is incredibly insightful, incredibly important. Our sin natures deceive us. Sin's deception isn't just out there. It is also deep in the caverns of our heart. How I feel does not tell me who I am. That's worth the whole article. How I feel does not tell me who I am. Only God can tell me who I am because he made me and takes care of me. So that's a, that's a fundamental issue for today. At the same time, when we talk about these things with strong words, I think loving words, we remember that we're, talking, we're not talking finally about issues, are we? We're talking about people. We're called to have open homes and open hearts. We are called to love all and show grace to all. But that doesn't mean agreeing with all or blessing all moral choices. So th- those with gender dysphoria, I'm starting there, typically feel isolated and rejected. And, and what is gender dysphoria? If you think, what are you talking about? So I'm, I'm just giving you a little de- definition. Gender dysphoria, or transgender, that's another way of saying it, is when your psychological and emotional feelings about your gender doesn't match your birth sex. Those who see themselves as transgender may consider themselves to be heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual, polysexual, or asexual. There's a lot of different categories. Incidentally, one out of 13,000 males, at least according to recent studies, feel that way, one out of 13,000 males. One in 20,000 or one out of 34,000, there's a big spectrum there, in females. Most children who meet the criteria for gender dysphoria do not continue to meet that criteria as they enter into adolescence. You probably know that. Most children outgrow those feelings that they have as they enter into adolescence. Here's from the American College of Pediatricians. Gender dysphoria resolves in the vast majority of patients by late adolescence. Well, God calls us, doesn't he, to walk wisely. We need sensitivity and compassion, and we need knowledge and truth. Transgender, transgender isn't about biology, fundamentally. It's about what people feel inside about themselves. And of course, we should never talk about those who struggle with such things with disrespect. We aren't to turn away from those who struggle with such things with disgust and revulsion. If we do, we forget that we're sinners, and we forget that we're all broken, and we're all broken sexually. Manifests itself in different ways, but we're all broken sexually. We all need forgiveness. We all need to change. So we affirm the dignity of all. We don't want to degrade or hurt anyone. We're all on a journey. We aren't, none of us are what we should be totally. We are, and we aren't what we will be. But by the grace of God, if you're a believer tonight, I don't know if you're all believers tonight, but by the grace of God, if you're a believer, we are what we are. As Paul says, I am what I am. You're a new person, and you're becoming a new person. But it's, it's, still, it's still a process. Now, one other definitional item, just to make sure we're all on the same page. I want, we need to 
distinguish transgender issues from intersex issues. Okay, so I'm going to read to you about what is intersex. In, this is again from Joe Carter. Intersex is a variation in sex characteristics, including chromosomes, gonads, or genitals that do not allow an individual to be distinctly identified as a male or female. So if someone is intersex, it's not clear, right, at birth, biologically, that they're male or female. That's a physical condition. Transgender is a psychological condition. The vast majority of people with intersex conditions identify as male or female rather than transgender or transsexual. So most people who are intersex, they don't, they don't claim to be transgender or to have gender dysphoria. But a decision has to be made. By the way, the old term that used to be used is hermaphrodite. But that term, in case you're not up on this, I think we ought to be charitable and loving, that term is considered offensive today. So that's a term that we should drop today and use the word intersex instead. Okay, so that's, that's all my introduction. Now I want to talk about the biblical axioms and, and the fundamental theological truths that inform our understanding of sexuality and gender. And it's really simple. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Those four points. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So creation. We're made, we're, we're, made, we're created by a good and loving God. Genesis 1 and 2. I'm not turning to those texts tonight, but everything God made is good. In fact, when he creates human beings, we're told it's very good. So we learn from that, don't we? We're not here by chance. God designed us. In fact, Psalm 139 says he knit us together in our mother's womb. Of course, that's metaphorical language, isn't it? But he fashioned us. We're not machines. We're not animals. We're human beings made in the image of God. We're the crown of God's creation. What's a human being? Who are we? So many people are confused. We are created by God. We're the crown of creation. We are works of art created by God. As human beings, we are magnificent. You are magnificent. You are created in God's image. That's true of every human being. Each of us has significance and dignity as persons made in the image of God. You know, Francis Schaeffer really emphasized this, if you know that name, in his Labrie ministry. And Francis Schaeffer wrote a book. It's it's one of my favorite books, and I just love the title. It was actually an exposition of the Gospel of Luke, and the title of the book is No Little People. There's, there's no little people. Everyone matters. Everyone is significant to God. Human beings, Francis Schaeffer liked to say, have titanic significance. You know, people don't know that, do they? People are confused about what, who and what we are as human beings today. If God made us, we must live according to the design of our creator. The, the, our creator knows how we should function and live. A shark can't decide to live on land. It will destroy itself, right? We can't construct. This is what's happening. More and more people in our culture are rejecting the, the God of the Bible. And, and therefore, they try to construct their own identity. But if God created us and made us and knows us and knows what makes us tick, we can't construct our own identity and flourish. We can't decide ourselves what we are. No, we can't discover our purpose in life apart from knowing God. One of my favorite theologians is John Calvin, who wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion, by the way, you can read that today. It's very understandable in translation. Calvin wrote that for the common people. 
I mean, it's 500 years old almost now, but Calvin begins by saying, we, will, we can only know God if we also know ourselves. And there's a, there's a relationship between the two. We know God better, but as we get to know God better, we also get to know ourselves better. That's a, that's a fabulous insight, isn't it? You, you, you see that in your own life? You begin to have more self-understanding, but as you have more self-understanding, you grow in your understanding of God. And those two work together in a reciprocal way. That makes sense because he's our creator. As created beings, we are embodied creatures. Our true selves are not our souls. Our true selves is not who we are in, in, in our interior. Our true selves is body and soul together. God made us to have a body. It was the Greek culture that said bodies don't matter, only the soul. But Scripture never says that. Scripture says bodies matter. Our true self can't be separated from our bodies. Here's what Sharon James says. I don't know if you know that name, but Sharon James is a Christian author in Britain. And Sharon is, uh, has written uh, uh, so many good books. Here's what she says. The so- supposed split between the real you and the appearance of your body is a new form of Gnosticism. It divides your mind or thoughts from the physical reality of the body. It says that your mind, your soul, your thoughts are more important and can overrule the physical facts. And what she's arguing is that view of the body is not Christian, it's Greek, it's Platonic, but it's not Christian. God didn't make us to be ascetics. Everything God created is good and is to be received with thanksgiving, 1 Timothy 4. And in that context... Paul's talking about marriage, isn't he? And, and food. We're not ascetics. Sometimes Christians have strayed into asceticism. That's not what Scripture teaches. So we're also created as sexual beings. That was God's idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20 says, Believers ought not to have sex with prostitutes. Why? Why does Paul say that? Because what we do with our bodies matters. What does Paul argue? Our bodies belong to God. Glorify God, therefore, in your body. What you do with your body is important. It isn't yours. It's your creator's. What you do with your body is ultimately not your choice. It's his choice. Since God specifically designs and determines our body, we are to reflect his intent in the way we use our bodies. We also see in Genesis 2 that God deliberately created male and female as different and interdependent. He could have created, it's often been said, but it's really true, isn't it? He could have, been, he could have created another man for Adam. He, he paraded the animals before Adam, right? I'm going to talk about this a little more Sunday morning. That's my sermon text, Genesis 2. But he paraded, he paraded the animals before Adam, and then he created Eve from Adam of the same dignity, essence, and worth, yet complementary to him. A woman is both like and unlike a man. She shares the same human nature, but she's also distinct from a man. And Jesus himself teaches us, doesn't he, in Matthew 19, that marriage, marriage is the union of one man with one woman. And Jesus is going back to what? Genesis 2. So what, what happened in creation is absolutely vital for forming our ethic on this issue. What Jesus taught there. Is transcultural, isn't it? Since it goes back to the created order. What Jesus taught about men and women, male and female, it isn't just a cultural word. It isn't limited to the first century Palestinian Jewish context. It reflects God's intention. That word of scripture is verified about men and women 
It's verified scientifically and biologically. If I have time, I'll say a little more about this, but we'll see if I have the time. But here, here's one quote from Andrew, Andrew Walker on men and women. Our chromosomes are different. Our brains are different. Our voices are different. Our body shapes are different. Our body strengths are different. Our reproductive systems are different. The design for what our bodies are structured and destined for are different. And these designs bear witness to differences that reflect God's creative will for humanity. It's not an accident, right? Because men and women are different, it's philosophically impossible for a man to become a physical woman or a physical woman to become a man. Those who say otherwise are trafficking in fiction about human nature. In fact, there is no scientific proof to verify the claim that one is trapped inside the wrong body. Well, more fundamentally, there's no biblical claim, but what Andrew Walker is saying there is what we'd expect. What God says is true is also reflected in the world we live in and the bodies we have. This is from the... Um, the, um, the American uh, Academy of uh, Physicians again. The norm for human design is to be conceived either male or female. Sex chromosome pairs, XY and XX, are ge- genetic determinants of sex, male and female, respectively. They are not genetic markers of a disordered body or a birth defect. Human sexuality is binary by design with the purpose being the reproduction of our species. Now, I don't even know if these people who put this report together believe in God, but notice that they said it's by design to reproduce our species. The Lord prohibits the blurring of gender identity. Deuteronomy 25 prohibits cross-dressing. Now, there's a lot of things in Deuteronomy, but I think that is a transcultural word. How that expresses itself can change from culture to culture, but I think that is a transcultural word. The Bible doesn't give us many regulations about what it looks like to be a man or what it looks like to be a woman. It doesn't give us a lot of specifics. So, let's not be more rigid than Scripture. Okay? There's a lot of flexibility there. There's, there's difference, but there's a lot of flexibility. And here again, I think Sharon James catches it. Here's one example of what I'm talking about. And I love what Sharon James said here. I think it's really helpful. She says, just because a little boy is unusually artistic and gentle does not mean that he should be pushed into thinking of himself as homosexual or transgender. A little girl may be sporty and tomboyish, but that doesn't mean that she should be pushed into identifying as lesbian or trans. Behaviors that would have been accepted as within the normal range even a few years ago, girls wanting to play boys' game or boys not wanting to engage in rough-and-tumble games, are now being interpreted as gender confusion. This defies common sense. There's a spectrum, isn't there? Not all boys are the same. You know, we don't want to go to that extreme as Christians. Oh, you're a boy? Oh, you're definitely interested in athletics or doing outside things. Boys, there's a spectrum of boys, and there's a spectrum of girls. So, so we, don't, we don't want to overreact as Christians, right, and become more rigid than the Scriptures are. We want to, we want to be balanced there and recognize, yes, within what it is to be a boy and within what it is to be a girl, there, there is a... People aren't all the same, are they? The fundamental point, though, since God made us, he defines our nature for us. We're not left in the dark on the most important question. Our sexuality is instituted by God himself. He knows us better. He knows us better than we know ourselves. That's fundamental. So that's creation. Now fall. Now fall. By fall, I mean the fall and the sin. Creation isn't the only reality for human beings. The world and human beings were created very good. But Genesis 3, something 
has gone radically wrong with the world. The world and human beings, you and I, we're not what we should be. We're not only created, but we're also fallen. When God created human beings, he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And we see from this right from the beginning, God defines, God defines what's good and evil. And he tells Adam and Eve, that's evil to take of that tree. Every other tree is fine. Here's what good is. Here's what evil is. If you, if you begin to think of it for yourself, how come? Well, that's what Eve did, right? How come? In our rebellion, we reject, what's rebellion? We reject God's definition of reality and human personhood and create our own definition. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They determined what is right and wrong. They listened to Satan and their own feelings instead of trusting in the Lord. So what is sin? Sin is fundamentally rebellion. Sin is not ignorant, ignorance fundamentally. Sin is fundamentally rebellion. It is the desire to be independent of God. Sin means we define ourselves what's good and evil. So when we sin, we de-God God. We de-God God, right? And we make ourselves God. Romans 5, again, I'm not reading these texts tonight, but Romans 5 indicates that what is true of Adam and Eve is true of all of us. When Adam fell as our covenant head, when Adam fell in the sin, we all fell with him. There's a family headship. We're all like our parents. We're one big unhappy family (laughs) from the fall, right? We're one big unhappy family. Not one big happy family, one big unhappy family. What happened with our parents? That's the way God's made the world, right? Even, even now we see it in our families. We're all shaped by our families. We're all shaped by our first parents. We're dead in trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2. So it's too simple to say God made us, God created us, we're good. No, there's something also radically wrong with human beings. G.K. Chesterton said, the doctrine of original sin is the most empirically verifiable of all Christian doctrines. In other words, if you didn't understand that quote, I'm sure you did though, but in other words, anyone who's had children knows this, right? We don't have to teach them to say, mine, mine, no. We don't have to teach them that. It's natural and instinctive to be selfish. We see that in our children. And where they learn that? From us. (laughs) They get it from parents, right? So our fall into sin affects every part of us. This is often called total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that we're as sinful as we can possibly be. That's obviously not true, right? Some non-Christians are very nice people. Total depravity doesn't mean we're as sinful as we could possibly be. Total depravity means sin has affected every part of us, body and soul. It's pervasive. It affects our bodies. Our bodies are disordered. Proof? Death. (laughs) We're dying. That's a disorder. Sickness. Death and sickness, according to Scripture, aren't natural, but are a consequence of living in a fallen world. We reach, some of you still aren't there, or maybe you're right there, we reach, but I'm long past it. We reach our physical peak in our 20s, and then we go down the rest of our lives. I've been going down for a long time, but I won't be going down too much longer, probably. So what about intersex conditions or deformities? They're a result of the fall, aren't they? But they're not... It's complex, isn't it? If somebody's born that way, it's not because of individual personal sin so much, is it? It's it's the sin of the human race, and that particular individual, they receive that when they come into the world. Yes, they're individually sinners, but they're not born intersex or with a physical deformity because of personal individual sin, are they? I don't know of any Christian who argues that. But there's a disorder. There's a physical disorder. If we feel alienated from our bodies, 
we remember our bodies are not yet perfected, but they're affected by sin. I'm not saying our bodies are intrinsically evil, okay? They're created by God, but they are disordered by the fall. We also have disordered minds. Romans 1 says we become foolish. We're naturally foolish in our perception of the world. Even the greatest intellectual is naturally foolish. He's not talking about intellectual ability, but the ability to interpret reality correctly. So a six-year-old who is a Christian is far wiser than a nuclear physicist who's an unbeliever. Foolishness is not talking about the capacity of one's intellect, but one's understanding of reality. How are we foolish? We construct false gods and we worship them instead of worshiping the one true God. We worship money. We worship pleasure. We worship power. We worship sex. False gods. They let us down. What's behind it all? A fierce desire to exalt ourselves and to put ourselves into the center. That's true of you. You have a fierce desire to do that. It shows up in different ways and different personalities. So do I. That's what we are. We're born in this world with a fierce desire to be God. That's what Scripture says. So, our mind, so we're, we're disordered in the way we think. Our disordered minds, it also shows up in other ways. In, in our stress, anxiety, depression, we're all incredibly broken and distorted in the way we view the world. We also feel alienated from one another socially. We can feel alone or isolated in the world. That's a result of the fall, isn't it? That's because sin has come into the world. So I would argue if someone has feelings of gender dysphoria, I'm kind of focusing on that, it isn't due probably to a specific sin or the sin of the individual. It's, we, we live in a sinful world, don't we? I, I have a student right now. He's working under me doing his PhD dissertation on same-sex issues. He's the son of a missionary in South America. And uh, from his earliest age, he had same-sex attraction. He didn't, he didn't choose to have that desire. It was just there. From a, from a pretty young age. He's battled with it. He thinks it's wrong. He actually has a ministry where he's helping people deal with this. He's actually married and has kids. But he has that, he has that temptation and desire. We're all, we're all born in different ways with hearts and desires and thoughts that are contrary to God's will. We, we, we have different struggles, don't we? We have, we have different, different ways that we're disordered. But none of us, even if you're heterosexual, none of us is sexually whole. For all of us, our desires are flawed. We, we live in the, in the I world, right? Instead of the God world. We live in an I world where we're, we're the center. So we think what we feel and believe is the truth. And we create our own morality in this world. I like what Sam Alberry says. Do you know that name? Sam has also written on these issues. Sam also struggles with same-sex attraction and thinks it's wrong. And Sam says, our culture says your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it. The Bible says your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. I think that's exactly right. You let your mind be conformed to what God has said about you. We see in Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27 that we turn away from what is natural when we engage in same-sex relationships. Same-sex relations are not the worst sin, but they reflect, they reflect a, a world in which we act contrary to what God has determined for us. So, creation, fall, redemption, redemption. That's the third. We're created by God. We're made in his image. At the same time, the storyline of the Bible, I mean, just look at human history, right? Just look at our cultures now. Just look at what's happening in many countries of the world right now. We're fallen. 
But that's not the end of the story. It could be the end of the story. But praise God, he has sent Jesus Christ to be our redeemer. We're redeemed and saved in Christ. He transforms us by his grace. How profound this Christian story is, we could take it so for granted, but it is really quite a stunning story. I mean, if you've heard it for a long time, the, the shocking nature of it is uh, can, we can easily just say, yes, yes, yes. I've, for some of you, you were taught this since you were young. But God became man. That is a very stunning idea. In fact, it's the most shocking idea in the Christian faith. I don't think there's any idea more shocking. God, God took on humanity. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. God became man. And why did he do it, Philippians 2? Why did he do it? Why did he become man? He could have done it. He could have done it. He could have become man so that everybody would see him and be amazed at him. But God became man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he became man just, just as human as you are, which, what are your desires? Your desires are to flourish, right? To be healthy and strong and to live a happy and full life. He became man to submit to God and to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, honestly, unless Jesus comes first, I know I'm going to die, but I don't know how I'm going to die. <laughs> I kind of like that. I kind of like that, not knowing how. Um, but Jesus knew how he was going to die. For how long? We don't know. I mean, I don't think he knew from the moment he was a baby as a man. He progressed in understanding. But at some point he knew. That's not a pleasant prospect, you know? Just think, you know, if you realize, yeah, in three years I'm going to die on a cross. <laughs> That's not a happy idea. What great love. What great love God shows to us in Jesus Christ in coming to suffer for our sake and our salvation. He took on human flesh. He knows what it is. You know, when Job is suffering, do you remember this? Job says to God, do you, do you know what I feel? You don't feel what I feel, Job says. But you can't say that anymore, <laughs> right? God does know what we feel. God became man. So if we begin to say, you don't know my struggle. Yes, he does. Yes, he does know your struggle. In fact, no one suffered more. Did anyone suffer more than Jesus Christ? No one did. No one else has suffered physically and faced the wrath of God. So no one can say, well, you don't know what I'm experiencing. It's too, it's too powerful. Jesus knows what it is to be a human being in a fallen world. He knows what it is to be tired and to be weary and to be tempted by sin. And, and he never gave in. So he's faced temptation to the max. We've all given in, but he's been tempted and never, ever given in. He came into the world to live for God's glory and our good instead of his own pleasure. So if you're a believer, you're free. You're liberated. You're redeemed. Your new identity is in Christ. For you died and are raised in him. You belong to Christ as the last Adam. You're not defined by your struggles with sin. You're not defined by your feelings. You're defined by who we are in Jesus Christ. I mean, honestly, I saw a video recently of a pastor in England. I got to spend three, last year I spoke in Wales, and I got to spend three days with him having breakfast. Vaughn Roberts. Vaughn Roberts is the pastor at St. Ebbs in Oxford. Vaughn Roberts is single Von Roberts said, I've struggled. He's about 50 years old or so. He struggled with same-sex attraction all his life. There's a, there's a great little five-minute video where he talks about his journey as well. So, but Von Roberts says, some, some people don't, uh, some people uh, go in a different direction here. But Von Roberts says, I don't call myself gay. He says, I have those desires. But he said, my identity is not gay. I love this. He said, I'm a Christian. That's my identity. What's your identity? I'm a Christian. 
That's my identity. We're all sons of God, daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All who are baptized in the Christ belong to Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying there's no such thing as male or female there, but we're not defined by our maleness or femaleness or, or your social standing or your ethnic background. We have the Holy Spirit. We're redeemed and freed by God. Now we have a battle between the flesh and the spirit, don't we? But as Christians, we are to walk in the spirit. Galatians 5.16. We're to be led by the spirit. Galatians 5.18. We're to produce the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5.22. We're to march and step with the spirit, step by step, right? Galatians 5.25. We're to sow to the spirit. Galatians 6.8. We're to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We are transformed from glory to glory. It's a process, right? Just as from the Lord, from the Spirit. What does it mean to be redeemed? It doesn't mean we're perfect. We still struggle with sin, but it means every day we choose to walk in the Spirit. That's what it means. It means... As 1 Peter 2.12 says, that we abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to have powerful desires to sin. Fleshly lusts. How, how powerful? It's a war. If you think, well, I must not be a Christian because I have incredibly strong desires to sin. No. The Bible says you'll have those. They wage war against the soul, and by the Spirit, you're to put those desires to death. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Kill those desires. Our, tra our transformation as Christians, we're redeemed, we're free, we're Christians, we're new, but our transformation is slow. Sometimes it's partial. We don't expect instant Christian maturity. To be redeemed isn't to be perfect. As churches, we should be welcoming and forgiving and compassionate. But it does mean we live out what it means to be a man and a woman. We live out what it means and according to the scriptures. We don't, we don't let our own thoughts dictate what it means to be a male and a female as members of the kingdom of God. We don't accept sin, we fight against it. So, consummation. So, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Consummation is quicker. I actually had a lot more things to say, but I prepared too many things. So, I'm not going to get to it all. That's okay. I wanted to say more things about male and female, but I'll get to it, you know, because I want to leave some time for questions. So consummation. A new day is coming, right? There's a new creation coming. There's a new universe coming. I mean, this world is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, what fabulous weather we've had lately. But this, even the created world is marked by the fall. There are tsunamis, and there's hurricanes, and there's tornadoes, and there's earthquakes that cause a lot of devastation. There's a new creation coming. And we will have resurrected bodies, 1 Corinthians 15. Our bodies now are affected by sin, as we already said. They're dying. They get diseases. They get, maybe you tonight, tired, right? We get tired. It's Friday night. And here we are. It's hard. I, f I find it harder to sit and listen now that I'm 62 than I did when I was 32. So, because my body just gets tireder. I find it harder to study. I used to be able to, I could study five hours straight. I, I can't do that anymore. So, you know, our, our bodies are weak, but they're going to be redeemed totally. We will be perfected. So the desires... Our, our, all our desires in heaven, right? All our desires in the new creation and the new universe that's coming, all our desires are going to match with, with God's will. 
There won't be that struggle anymore. Now we're redeemed, but we struggle. Then, no more struggle. Just full redemption will be perfected. Why does that God give us those promises? So that we're filled with hope. So that we're filled with hope. So that we're filled with confidence. We will be what we should be. We'll perfectly be that person. So if you love whatever, you know, baseball season just ended. If you love baseball, it's really hard to be good right at hitting a baseball. That's a, that's a great, a, a difficult skill to learn. But if you love baseball and you're first learning it and you're striking out every time, but someone comes to you authoritatively and says, look, someday you're going to be in the World Series and you're going to hit the winning home run. You're going to want to practice even more. You won't say, I won't practice at all. You'll start dreaming of that day. You'll, you'll work all the harder at baseball. That's, that's what the promises of God say. You're going to be everything you want to be as a Christian. If you get discouraged and think, I'm never going to get there, you're going to get there. You're going to get there, and you're going to get there perfectly by God's grace. So God, God's promises are meant to give us hope so that we keep fighting now. So we don't give in because our desires sexually, our desires sexually are very powerful. And why, why, why do some people say, I just can't do it anymore? Because it's a fight and it's hard, right? It's hard, but those promises pull us back and say, you're going to be all that God wants you to be. Keep fighting to the end. Hang in there. Hang in there. Whatever, you know, God gives us different battles to face. You know, some, some, people, some people are single and they really want to get married, but they never get married. That's, that's tough, isn't it? So those promises are there. In the meantime, maybe I'll just close here and open up for some questions. In the meantime, we live out our lives as men and women, according to God's pattern. We recognize the differences between men and women, and we live... According to those differences, 